Ladies and gentlemen, live from coast to coast, we proudly present For Your Infilmation with Zach and John. Hello, boys and ghouls, and welcome to a very special edition of Foyer Information, Spooky as Heck edition. Spooky as heck? Spooky as heck. For this entire month, we're going to be bringing you some hot takes and some history lessons about the Universal Monsters. These were movies that were released between about 1930 and 1960, and it is technically the first instance of a cinematic universe in films. Interesting. You know, nowadays I feel like there's a lot of that. I feel like there is obviously Marvel but there's other series as well that have really just kind of carried that. I mean, Star Wars, for example. Look at how far Star Wars has come in the past, really even five years. Yeah, Star Wars, you know, you got your Lord of the Rings with The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. You've got just all kinds of stuff. Like, people are hopping on this bandwagon now because people love it. It's basically just really, really, really highly produced television at this point. Yeah, it's a big cash cow. So, for those of you that are unacquainted with the Universal Monsters, these are your Draculas your werewolves, your invisible mans, your creatures from the Black Lagoon. And uh, just to help the Gen Zers out here, um, Dracula would be Iron Man. You think Frankenstein so? would be Captain America. Hmm. Werewolf would be Thor. See, I and... find that interesting because when you think about like Frankenstein, Dracula, they're kind of a European thing. But when you think of the Wolfman, the Wolfman, as far as I understand it, as far as Universal is concerned, is a largely American monster. Uh, yeah, it's an American monster, but I'm not sure where the origins of the werewolf began. I know it can't be in America. Oh, no, it's like as old as people are. It's as old as people are. And you know what? When we cover the Wolfman, we'll get there. But for today, we are going to start with the one that started it all, Dracula. Ooh, yeah, I'm so ready. Dracula is often considered the best of these movies, and it also starts off this shared universe, even though the same actors aren't used more often than not for these, but they do interact with the other monsters. That's somewhat true. I think in the case of Dracula in particular, there's a lot of continuation with Bella Lugosi, who we'll touch on. But uh, for the other characters, maybe not so much. Not so much. Um, and I just wanted to give you guys a quick history lesson because there's a lot of things going on in here that might give this movie proper context. If you haven't watched the movie, it's an hour and 15 minutes. Just watch it, you dumb fuck. Anyway, but before we get into that, John. How are you today? I'm doing pretty spectacular. I am so ready for this spooky season. This is one of my favorite times of year. I, I think a lot of people can relate with that. I think uh, my wife in particular gets super excited for Halloween, and it's really cool to see just like the subtle transformation as the month goes on, where we go from like, uh, I guess the end of September and the dying days of summer into the cool, crisp autumn, or in my case, also really hot, dusty, dry autumn. <laughs> that that leads us to Halloween and subsequent holidays. It's kind of the dying of the year, and that's a little spooky. It's kind of that weird time where the lands of the living and the dead come together, and the, the, the veil is very thin, almost like a twilight. 
when you realize it's almost October and you still have the same amount of money in your bank account that you did the year before and you realize that you didn't go anywhere this year and then you realize that you're an adult and you can't keep doing this anymore. That's what I feel like. And that's spooky all year. See, I feel like this is a time for candy. And as an adult, this is a time for cocktails. And that's what I am excited about. Ooh, cocktails. You know what? Let's go ahead and get right into it. John, tell us about your cocktail that you made. All right. So this one is original. Yes, or at least... (sighs) Original. What is original? Like, how long have we been drinking alcohol? Literally forever? Like, what, uh, 9,000 years as long as people have been drinking stuff, I guess? But I mean, um, I don't know. Jesus turned a bunch of shit into alcohol, so... That's true. That's true. Um, we're not going back quite that far, but... Uh, This cocktail is called the Transylvanian Corpse Reviver. So for those of you that are familiar with the movie, you'll know that Dracula is from Transylvania, and you'll also know that he is undead. So uh, it's kind of a fitting title, but more importantly, it is a continuation of a legacy of cocktails that we call, like, Hair of the Dog Cocktails. Mmm. So this would normally be like a shot and not a whole drink. Not necessarily. You'd be surprised. These cocktails traditionally are something that you drink like the day after a lot of other drinking. And frankly, I don't Uh. understand why, because there's not a lot of difference between these and a conventional like party night cocktail. Or we're talking not like a rum and coke situation. We're talking like a martini situation. You know what I mean? Mm. Like you trade in your tuxedo t-shirt for like an actual like vest with a tie. Ah, so this is like high class. A little bit more so than your average bear would be drinking, I guess. But yeah, so there's Corpse Survivor number one, which is a brandy-based cocktail. Corpse Survivor number two, which is more of like a gin-based cocktail. And then there's a third one that I'm not really quite sure what it is or why it is. But I mean, they're kind of lost to history to a degree. This one is the Transylvania Corpse Survivor, and this is how you would make it. Uh, So you're going to take one ounce of Sambuca. Three quarter Wait, ounces. Hold on, hold on. What yeah, is Sambuca? On. Sambuca. Okay. Uh, a little backstory here. This is not necessarily like a like a common liquor. This is something that you would see in a uh, a bar dedicated to more quote unquote advanced cocktails. Um, something a little bit more traditional. It's actually an Italian liqueur. Um, it's about the strength of your average liquor these days, about 40% by volume. But it is a sweet, almost oily liquor that is anise-flavored. It's got a couple other herbal flavors, but it's primarily that kind of like a biting licorice taste, uh, which is not something that you see in an awful lot of cocktails these days, but used to be quite common. Um, in Italy, this is sometimes served with coffee beans in the shot glass with the Sambuca. Uh, sometimes it's actually lit on fire to roast the flavors a little bit, which is kind of exciting. We didn't do that for this cocktail. The dead are cold, and so is this cocktail. <laughs> Best served chill. Yes, yes, absolutely. Just like your spine. Ooh. So anyway, uh, it's going to have a little bit of a licorice flavor, but... Don't be scared. It's, it's going to be fine. Uh, it's not going to be too hard to drink for most people, I think. So uh, we'll start that recipe over from the top here. Uh, it's like going to be one ounce of Sambuca, uh, three quarter ounces of vodka, a half ounce of triple sec, an ounce of fresh lemon juice, an ounce and a half of lemonade, and one dash of hibiscus flower syrup. Mm. So you'll take all of those ingredients and you'll shake them together with ice in your cocktail shaker. And then you'll strain them out into your glass. And for this cocktail, there's a little bit of preparation with the glass. You're going to need a martini glass. So it's that classic funnel cone-shaped glass on a long stem that you'd see in all the James Bond movies or something like that. Uh, You're going to chill that thing in your freezer for a little while, bring it out, and drop yourself a hibiscus flower, you know, pickled in the syrup. Pickling? Is that the right term? Preserved in the syrup. 
Uh, you're going to drop that flower right into the bottom of the glass and strain your cocktail over the top. Uh, the effect is that it's a little bit foggy on the outside from the warming up of the glass. It's kind of pink. It's got a little bit of a foamy layer on top, just a tiny bit ahead on that guy. And um, the flavors balanced really well, or at least they did for me. You know, I kind of liked the fresh lemon sour tart kind of sweetness with the thick, candy-like nature of the sambuca so it's almost like a uh like a lemon twizzler yeah a little bit like like a lemon licorice you could say that it's very halloween candy kind of uh flavor and can we top this off with some candy corn i would not do that but if you (laughs) wanted to be really fun you could get like a licorice straw i don't know why you would drink a drink in a martini glass with a straw but I, I, you're allowed to do that this is a free country um this is a free country uh, you're allowed to be stupid but you know what you, you do that yeah exactly. however i will say um drinking mountain dew code red with a twizzler straw pretty great anyway so thank you john for our new cocktail that we're going to be drinking you're welcome uh, make sure you check out our facebook page for that recipe if you want to make it at home um, so now let's get back into a little bit of history, a little bit of pretext for Dracula. So Dracula came out in 1931. And just so you guys know, because I know a lot of people complain about movie ticket prices, um, a movie ticket for this movie in 1931 would have on average costed 35 cents. Really? I feel like that's a little high for 1931. Well, it would be adjusted for inflation. That would be $5.74. Huh. Maybe my inflation calculator is a little off. I mean, it's kind of bouncing off the walls these days. Oh, yeah, exactly. Well, like in just in researching that, um, the actual highest ticket price other than now on average was in 1970, was in 1975 tickets for $5.35. And that would be equivalent to $11 today. Really? Yeah, so that was actually when inflation was at its highest. I don't know why. I'm not that kind of history person. I went to school to study movie history, and uh, my mom hates me for it. So I'm going to use some of that knowledge to help you guys out today. You know what? We're putting our skills to work here. I'm making cocktails, and you're making uh, the people more aware of the golden age of Hollywood? More aware of the golden age of Hollywood, more aware of how movies are made. That's what I'm trying to do here, guys. Okay, so this movie came out one year after the Hayes Code was initiated. Now, you might be asking, what's the Hayes Code? What's the Hayes Code, Zach? Well, I'll tell you, you stupid person. The Hayes Code was sort of a precursor to the MPAA rating system. Mm, I know how much you love the MPAA rating system. The MPAA rating system makes no fucking sense. Um, The Hayes Code was a lot stricter than the MPAA is even today. And I'm going to go through some of the some of the reasons why that is. You know, and it could be like when you're watching something from the 30s to 1968, which is uh when the Hayes Code was in act, you might notice that things are a little bit more cheery, they're a little bit more wholesome and you might think, "Well, I guess it was just a little bit more wholesome back in the 1930s to 1968, huh?" No. You're absolutely wrong. Things were just as fucked up then as they are now. However, there were a bunch of fucking pilgrims in office, and the they decided that Hollywood needed to appease them and their other pilgrim friends. 
you know, I think everything was super cheery if you can discount like the Dust Bowl, the Great Depression, the Second World War, the Korean War, the beginning of the Vietnam War, and a number of other like serious happenings in those couple of decades. Well, I mean, and just even leading into the 70s with just, you know, housing market crash and all these other things, like things weren't like great. Like there were people that were bad back then, like Actually, a lot of serial killers very active during this time. That so, is true. So just put just putting that into perspective, not everything was as happy and cheery as it is. And uh, here's like the best example that I can find of like how this haze code worked. Go ahead and lay it on me. So I love Lucy, right? Sure. Okay. So in I love Lucy, Lucy and Ricky, being a married couple, do not sleep in the same bed. They have to, because of the Hayes Code, they have to sleep in separate beds. And as a matter of fact, they would have liked it even more if they slept in separate bedrooms because you could not say anything that referred to sex at all. Up to and including pregnancy. You couldn't talk about pregnancy under the Hayes Code. You would have to say that a woman was expecting or blessed. Blessed. So uh, this is like a weird kind of like ancient american sharia law no it was just made by um william h hayes who was a republican leader at the time who was put in charge to uh kind of wrangle up the horrible horrible people down there in hollywood because a lot of the public viewed that they were getting a little out of hand and actually as it turns out todd browning the director of dracula directed a movie before this called freaks and it was one of the first movies where they said okay we need to get someone in here we need to we need to get these people in control you know i am actually a little familiar with that film and it's kind of a weird one like of all the movies that were made in this time period this one is still remembered as kind of a lack of a better term a freak show of a movie well and there's a good reason for that because they hired actual sideshow performers and they didn't treat them very well and did not put them in a very positive light and uh the most of the public did not like that However, when this movie came out, they started doing it as a road show. Now, a road show would be where the director or maybe some of the actors would go like from town to town, from state to state and show the movie for a really low cost, like five cents. Hmm. And this is how Grindhouse actually started. So because movies like this and people who are interested in movies like this, that's how Grindhouse got started. And if you're looking for more information on that, there's a great documentary on Amazon Prime called American Grindhouse. It's about an hour and 30 minutes. It takes you through the whole history. It's got some film buffs in there. It's got some actual academic people talking about Grindhouse film. It's really, really cool. I highly suggest it. So, Too Long didn't read. This Hayes guy is kind of like the white orc to Truett Cathy of Chick-fil-A's Goblin King? Yes. <laughs> the Goblin King. The Goblin King. He He's a Goblin King. Truett Cathy is not dead. Anyone, I promise, he's just gone back underground. Just like Elvis. He just went home. Hmm. Not unlike Walt Disney, but he's just ahead now. Exactly. So... Before I go any further, I just wanted to give you guys a couple more of these um, more weird Hayes Code uh, violations. These are absolute do-nots. Pointed profanity by either title or lip. This includes the words God, Lord, Jesus, or Christ, unless used in religious context. Hell, damn, or God, and every other profane or vulgar expression, however it may be spelled. Any nudity, in fact, or silhouette cannot be used the illegal, the illegal traffic of drugs 
any inference of sex perversion. So all your uh, porn, all your uh, nude island movies, which is also part of Grindhouse, uh, those were definitely not Hayes Code approved. Uh, I think a very interesting one here is white slavery. You uh, could yeah. not, you could not portray white slavery in anything. Also, on that topic, you could not have a relation between a white and black woman and um, or either way around. So very interesting. And uh, Night of the Living Dead, I think, was one of the first movies to uh, subvert this. Mm-hmm. You could not show childbirth. Uh, you could not ridicule the clergy. So all very, very like don't make fun of the church. Don't do any sex. Women aren't people. And uh, neither is anyone that's not white. Like, that is what the Hayes Code is saying. I was going to say, with the sexual perversion clause, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that also includes all instances of, like, homosexuality, anything that's uh, LGBTQIQ plus friendly. Yes, you would be exactly correct. So it would be homosexuality. It would be uh, BDSM. It would be, you know, anything like that. But interestingly enough, that so the Hayes Code is split into two parts. There's absolute do not and there's be careful. Mm. And rape is in be careful. What the fuck? Yeah, not... So you can't talk about childbirth, but rape, mm, you better you better toe the line on this one, Charlie. So what you're telling me is that the scene in Night of the Living Dead, where you have two people that are interacting uh, potentially romantically, but they're of different races, is more controversial than a movie like uh, I Spit on Your Grave, which is literally just rape. In this day and age, yes. That is astounding to me. Is it really astounding? It is it is and it isn't. You shouldn't be surprised. Uh, spoiler alert, everybody. The United States used to not be a great place for everybody. Still kind of isn't. But we, we are not going to get into that. I was um, going to say, Hollywood's never exactly been the shiny example of like what is good and not good about society. Like Hollywood was a really crooked place and kind of still is. I've been there once or twice. Exactly. And to bring it all home, to tell you about the Hayes Code and all this is to tell you that Dracula coming out in 1931, while the Hayes Code was not in full force effect until 1934, studios were clamoring to just try and even make sure that they could release a film after 1934. So they cut Dracula so heavily that the director said he left most of his best work on the floor, on the editing room floor. We only get about an 85-minute movie, which is very, very tame by today's standards. Still gets a PG rating somehow when uh, adapted to the MPAA rating system. I mean, after watching the new Evil Dead, I kind of understand, I guess. I guess so. But this is the most important thing, guys. All of that footage that was cut is lost. That is the saddest part of this, I think. It's the saddest part of this. Um, there's several things that were in the original theatrical run that are lost because of having to re because in re-releasing they had to fix things for new Hayes Code rules and regulations. And it's really sad that there are some movies where we'll never see them in their truest form. And anytime there's a movie like that, I will let you guys know because Lost Footage is a very, very cool and interesting part of film history. In the age of information where we have access to so much content and so much data now, it's kind of crazy to look back and think that stuff like that is just truly gone. Like, whoever edited the movie 
either had the option to hold on to or destroy those pieces of the film. And I guess in a lot of cases, they just didn't make it out. I know another Bella Lugosi film, uh, London After Midnight, is completely lost. There is no remnants of that left. And that has to do with how films were distributed back then. Like, movie theaters sometimes were ordered to destroy copies in order to uh, make them more rare on purpose some of them didn't take very good care of them or sold them at some sort of weird garage sale so it's just gone like someone might have it in their attic but they they don't know what they have hmm. maybe one day we'll see a copy of london after midnight come back maybe someday we'll have a complete copy of dracula maybe maybe not i mean it's been so long it's leaning on probably not that is a real shame it is a real shame but on to um, more exciting things like the uh, actual movie. Right. Uh, just, a, just a few more things just to give some proper context to this, and I promise we won't have to do this in future episodes. This movie, Dracula, is actually the first horror talkie. Now, what's a talkie, you might ask? What is a talkie, I might ask, Zach? Shut the fuck up, John. A talkie is just a talking movie, so a movie that you guys are normally accustomed to. The first talkie was in 1927, which was The Jazz Singer starring Al Jolson. Don't look it up. Lots of blackface. But this was the first horror one. So you mean to tell me that blackface doesn't constitute horror in today's day and age? In today's day and age, yes. Um, I remember when I was in a musical theater history class, I had to watch The Jazz Singer, and it's uh, hard to get through. Hmm, fun. So it's like the Song of the South of live action talkies. Yes, only it might be a little worse. Damn. Damn is exactly correct. And then just two more things. The Spanish version of this movie was filmed at night on the same sets with different actors and is a shot for shot, same thing, just in a different language. I've heard a little bit about this Spanish version of the film, and some people today seem to hold that that movie is definitively better than the English one. They do say that. I have not seen it. I would like to see it. But th that was the case sometimes, like, because they might have better actors. I guess that's true. I didn't really think about that. I mean, you like to think that Hollywood has the best of the best, or they at least have the money to try and get the best of the best. But mm -hmm. just because they're in the English version and not in the Spanish version, or if they're in the Spanish version, not in the English version, doesn't mean that they're going to be any better or worse. It just means that they're different. And I mean, I guess maybe they did get some better stuff. Like you said, it's the same sets. It's the same stuff, right? It's, ex it's the exact same stuff, just different language, different actors. And the reason they had to do that was because there was no overdubbing at this time. And that's because the soundtrack was not yet put onto the film reels, but that is a story for another time. So subs versus dubs wasn't really a question back then. Yeah, subs versus dubs was not a question. You either watched the movie, and if you couldn't hear, you better get used to watching silent movies. Which, coincidentally enough, this came out at a time when not all movie theaters had switched over to talkie theaters. So there are actually versions of Dracula that have cue cards like a silent film. I did not know that. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And um, let's see, just one last thing to lead us in. Uh, this movie came out only a couple years after the German language film Nosferatu. Mm, nine years to be exact. Nine years. And uh, you guys know Nosferatu. You know him from your childhood. He was in that SpongeBob episode with the hash thinging slasher. You know, when he's flicking the lights on and off. No, Sferatu. That's the guy we're talking about. Oh, yeah. Good old Max Shrek. Good old Max Shrek, who may or may not have been a vampire. Who knows? Who knows? He's dead. Who cares? 
Or maybe he's not. So when they filmed Nosferatu, they did not acquire the rights legally from the Widow Stoker to make the movie. So therefore, they had all of the profits from the film taken away from them. And then fast forward nine years later, uh, Universal acquired the rights from the Widow to make Dracula legally so that they could keep all the profits. That is true. Uh, Something in the process of that that I realized while researching the movie was that the film that we're seeing right now, uh, the 1931 version of Dracula, is based on the theatrical rendition from 1924, which also featured Bela Lugosi first off, but also was the first licensed adaptation of the novel to be seen on the stage. Yes, and actually, they didn't even want to do the stage adaption. What they wanted to do was to go back and really do the novel justice, but Universal didn't see it fit to... Uh, use the money to do that so they just adapted the stage production that's something that we kind of forget about movies was there was a point in time where it was more of a convenience thing where it was easier to take a film reel of a theatrical production and move it over into a theater than to just make a totally new adaptation for the screen exactly it's um because if you could just get all the same people get them there for like you know a couple days after the show at after the broadway show closes you can get the movie out pretty quick. And the, and back in those days, they used to pump these movies out like left and right. Like, as a matter of fact, Dracula and Frankenstein came out in the same year. That's true. Dracula came out in February and Frankenstein came out in November. I think at this point in time, Universal was make well, maybe not Universal specifically, but there were more movies coming out of Hollywood than even today, like substantially more, like at least 200 more per year. Yeah, it's just like Bollywood is now. Right. Insane. Anyway... Enough of the small talk. John, are you ready to get into it? I am more than ready to get into it, Zach. All right, let's uh let's sink our teeth in to Dracula. You you did that. You you said that out loud. I said that out loud and I'm only going to kill myself a little bit later. Dracula was released in February 14th, 1931. Valentine's Day is kind of a weird day to release a horror movie, but whatever. Uh, it was produced by Universal Pictures and directed by Todd Browning. Todd Browning, just a very, very interesting director. Uh, we'll have to do some more of his movies later. He's like the Johnny Appleseed of defying censorship. Exactly. Like, he just did not give a fuck unless it was with someone else's money. Right. The score of the movie, which is kind of non-existent, but in the opening they feature Tchaikovsky's Swan Lake, or at least a small portion of it. Uh, which I believe is- it's from Act 2. I think so, too. Uh, Maybe I'm wrong. You'd think I'd remember that kind of thing. Classical music was kind of my thing for a few years there. Whatever. Not important. Uh, This movie had a budget of about $355,000, which is about $6 million in 2019 dollars. Which is just crazy. Like, the inflation rate is insane there. And even though the inflation rate's kind of high, $6 million is a small budget by today's standards. Yeah, that would be like an indie flick. Right. I mean, at the box office, it's, I actually had a hard time finding this information, but it made about $700,000 in profit uh, at first from the box office, and it cost about $355,000 to make. So you put those together, this film would have had to have made at least a million dollars. Yeah, exactly. And that's after you take out, you know, advertising and, you know, other concerns. Right, all the costs associated with it. I mean, in today's money, that's about $16.8 million, which is no amount to sneeze at, especially for a film that had an equivalent $6 million budget in today's money. Exactly. This would be like um, Clerks, that which was made for $10,000 and then went on to make about 4 or $5 million You want to be really mad at me for office. a second? I'm always really mad at you. Why? 
I've never seen Clerks. Well, we will fix that because that is one of my favorite movies of all time. Yeah, I know it is. I'm I a Kevin Smith stan until I fucking die, bitch. All right, well, back to Dracula and <laughs> not, not Clerks. Uh, it was kind of viewed as a risky film by Universal. I found that to be particularly interesting in hindsight, just looking at how huge it ended up being and like the impact that the film has up until today even. But they didn't think at the time that American audiences were ready for like a horror thriller type film without comic relief. Yeah, it's very European, this movie is, considering, you know, like I said... Hayes Code and all these other kind of things, you know, Charlie Chaplin kind of made America's cinema, like, kind of cheery. Like, even if it's a war movie, you know, people don't die. You know, like, it's not very realistic. And, I mean, I guess neither is uh, blood-sucking vampires running around in London. But it's not, you know, it didn't have a happy ending. Like, the movie doesn't have a happy ending. Spoiler alert. Uh, do spoiler alerts count on movies that are older than 50 years old? I don't think I, so. I don't think spoiler alerts count on this podcast because nine times out of ten we ruin the ending of the movie just by the nature of what we do. Exactly. So I don't want to hear any complaints. Right. So despite this film being doubted by Universal at first, it ended up being the highest grossing film that they produced in 1931 across the board. And also it was the sixth highest grossing movie of 1931. So that's Overall. just from... All productions. That's from all productions. That's kind of incredible, honestly. Yeah, and like we said, there were about 400 movies coming out at any given time. Ugh, God, that's, that's crazy to think how much they were making back then with what they had. Well, like I said, dude, they were just cranking these things out, and teenagers would just go in droves to see these movies. Hmm. Not much has changed, I guess, in some ways, but I mean, in other ways, they're about 200 movies short this year. Exactly. And just think about all the movies you haven't seen, John. Uh, we'll, we'll get there eventually. That's the tagline for this whole podcast, man. We'll get there. <laughs> we'll get there. So let's talk about the cast. Uh, this is like maybe the biggest focal point of the movie because there are so many people in this movie that are, in hindsight, very, very relevant to cinema history. Mm-hmm. Most notably being Bela Lugosi. Of course, Bela Lugosi is Dracula. Dracula is Bela Lugosi. He invented the silver screen version of Dracula that's persisted through today. Um, also starred in The Raven, 1935, and White Zombie in 1931, the same year. Um, and as mentioned previously, he starred in the theatrical rendition of Dracula in addition to the movie. Yes, Bela Lugosi is a big, big, big name in this game, man. Absolutely. I mean, he ended up getting typecasted a lot after this just because of how iconic he became. Even looking at a picture of him outside of the Dracula makeup, you can't not see Dracula. And when I and when I look at him in this movie, I also can't not see the Count from Sesame Street. I'm gonna not think about that while we're doing this review. <laughs> A fun fact, uh, Bela Lugosi actually also served in World War One in the Austro-Hungarian Army. Ooh. Yeah, we, and got then a, he got, we got a fighting boy. We do, and then he got kicked out of Hungary because of the involvement he had in the 1919 Communist Revolution. Oh, we've got a we've got a communist fighting boy. Oh boy, nothing says communist like an overpriced Che Guevara t-shirt. So, other characters of note, believe it or not, there's only about nine people listed on the cast title card for the movie, but we got about five here. Uh, Mina is played by Helen Chandler, uh, known from Outward Bound in 1930. Actually died rather young considering, uh, at about 59. Uh, this kind of reminds me of a Judy Garland type situation. I don't know if she lived such a hard life or not, but it seems like some of these like Hollywood darlings from this period just did not have the longevity as other actors. 
she cut she had kind of a hard life but and i need to do more research about it but apparently like because this was kind of her big deal like this was her big movie and then she kind of didn't do anything but she had a lot of illusions of grandeur and a lot of like hysteria after this movie so she really didn't do very much but she still thought that she was like this big star and you know by the time that like this movie was re-released in about i think 1947 no one knew who she was. That's sad, because I feel like she did an exceptional job. She did very, very well in this movie. Except for, you know, just like having that 1930s Hollywood actress, Oh, I'm I'm a woman. Oh, no, I'm over here. You know, I thought about that the entire time, how, like, it seems like um, the doctors, and specifically Van Helsing, really aren't just paying attention to what she's saying and kind of, like, sweeping her under the rug a little bit. Or maybe she's made out to look a little more hysterical than she actually would be if this were real. But then I thought, look what they're doing to Renfield. Oh, man. Poor Renfield. The the poor cuck boy of the film. Yeah, played by Dwight Fry, who also was in Frankenstein, 1931, and Maltese Falcon, also 1931. That's an interesting movie that I want to watch, The Maltese Falcon. It's a good one. Also, Jen Zeers, checking back in with you. Um, think of this as American Horror Story, and uh, the guy who played Renfield... Dwight Fry, he would be like your um, Evan Peters. Hmm, interesting comparison. Well, he's in a lot of these movies, man. That's true, I guess. A lot of these guys were. Uh, also, playing John Harker, David Manners was in The Mummy, another Universal film from 1932, and several other Universal classics there on in. Um, similarly, Van Helsing is played by Edward Van Sloan, who was also in Frankenstein 1931, and several other Universal classics that followed on. He, he, he's the boy, man. He's the boy. He did spectacularly. Fucking killer, man. Like, he's, he's the perfect, like, I want this guy to win all day, every day. This guy winning. Right. This movie currently holds a 7.5 out of 10 on IMDb, a 91% on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, the reviews for this film were generally positive. The acting was considered exquisite. This was also a nail in the coffin for Bela Lugosi as he was kind of typecast for the rest of his career. He played Dracula a few more times after this and believe it or not was actually buried in the costume. He was he was buried in a cape. It was not the cape. That one still belongs to his son. He tried to auction it off in the late 90s but no one wanted to buy it, so he's it's believed to still be in the family. That's kind of awesome and kind of sad. Well, he also wanted, uh, I believe, like a million and a half dollars for it. All which, right. Which I guess that's like museum prices. Like if you want a museum to buy it, that's what you're looking at. I suppose so. Man, if we have anybody out there who knows anything about museums that way, uh, give us a ring. Let us know what you think about how much this piece of shit should be worth. You know what? I'm not going to defame the count like that. How much this exquisite garb is worth. How much this uh, paper mache is worth, let us know down in the comments. All right, so uh, let's get into the movie itself. Let's dig into the meat of the matter. So let's get right into the movie here. Uh, it opens on a real estate salesman in Renfield. He travels through the wilds of Transylvania to complete a sale with Count Dracula, who wants to move to a new castle near London. Uh, Dracula uses his supernatural powers to make Renfield his personal slave, and they embark on a ship bound for London. That's something that we saw a lot in Nosferatu. Uh, there are a lot of differences, but that one stayed very, very true, just in a different part of the film. Uh, upon arrival, Dracula seeks out his neighbors, uh, Mr. Seward, 
uh, Mina, who's his daughter, John Harker, Mina's fiance, and Lucy, who is a friend of Mina's. After captivating Lucy and Mina with his exotic charms, Dracula sets about attacking people by night in his eternal search for blood. 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 Uh, Renfield, having gone completely insane, is captured and taken to a sanitarium where Professor Van Helsing learns of his master, the Count Dracula, and the strange power that he holds over people. Uh, Van Helsing was very prepared for this. Just throwing that out there. This was the right guy at the right place at the right time. Uh, a lot of weird stuff starts to happen around the sanitarium and the home of Mr. Seward, and they don't seem to have any logical scientific explanation for anything that's going on. This is kind of a science versus nature versus supernatural kind of thing going on that we don't see in a lot of other Universal movies, but we'll talk about the evolution later. And after Dracula preys upon Lucy and Mina, Professor Van Helsing embarks on a quest to expose Dracula for the monster he is before more lives, and more importantly, Mina's soul, are lost forever. And this is almost true to the book, I believe? Okay, I started reading this book about a week ago. I haven't gotten very far, but I notice a lot of differences right off the bat um for one they spend a lot more time in dracula's castle in the book i think that was better reflected in nosferatu and when they say bella lugosi invented the count dracula image they were not kidding at all the dracula in the novel is really more like a bloodthirsty ned flanders <laughs> hi diddly ho i want to suck your blood yeah he's kind of like that like he has like a really big shoe brush mustache and like his teeth are filed down, or they're pointy, I guess. I don't know if that's like a natural, unnatural thing. I haven't really figured that much out yet by reading it. But in the movie, Bela Lugosi has nice, straight, normal-looking teeth. He does not have a mustache. He has a like, slick-back, kind of suave look about him. He speaks very, very properly, uh, despite having a bit of an accent, a little bit of a language barrier, which persists in the book, too, I guess. But like I said, I didn't get that far into it. But for the distance into the book that I got... I noticed a lot of differences. And maybe we could talk about those at a later date. Maybe so. I mean, maybe this is just more of a byproduct of the movie coming from the theatrical rendition, which is a kind of loose look at the novel itself. Agreed. All right, let's dig into this. Yeah, so... Title cards. Not something that we see a lot of today, necessarily. Uh, certainly not, like, still image title cards like you see in, like, a Popeye cartoon. But um, it's the only music in the film. Uh, it introduces the, the name and the production company and, uh, like, all the actors and stuff, just like you would expect on a title card, playing that Swan Lake theme. Yeah, playing the Swan Lake theme. Um, this was actually how all films were done uh, prior to, actually, believe it or not, Star Wars. Really? Yes. All movies prior to this, or prior to Star Wars, had all of the credits listed before the film started. And that was, like, a law. Like, you had to do that. Yeah, I guess the Screen Actors Guild were pretty powerful. The Screen Actors Guild still is very powerful. Um, Believe it or not, unless you were just making a movie with a hand camera in your backyard, uh, they can put a stop to any movie they want. Really? Yeah, it's kind of crazy. It's like if you want to talk about the film Illuminati, it's fucking real. Damn. Like if you, like if you ever heard about a movie that you really wanted to see and then you heard nothing about it, you best believe they had something to do with it. Oh, like that one meme movie, The Chronicles of Rickroll? The Chronicles of Rickroll. My brain didn't comprehend the stupidity that you just said. Can we move on now? All right. If you're interested, look it up. It's a good laugh. 
Um, so uh, the film opens on the same landscape that you would see in the book. I would be really interested to know how they did this in the theatrical rendition because he's traveling through the uh, Carpathian countryside through the mountains. Um, he gets a couple of knickknacks from the locals because they are very concerned for his safety in seeking out Count Dracula. And he makes his way out. Um, kind of a weird thing going on, but it looks good. It's not the same as the book, but it looks good. The book is a lot more, like, mythological. Like, there's a lot more stuff going on around. And they do a good job of explaining it. I mean, what has to be expected in a film adaptation of what's ultimately a novel. But the castle is really where things pick up. Things look amazing once they get to the castle. The castle looks fantastic. And um, to answer your question, John, uh, they actually probably didn't do... Like, that effect probably wasn't that much different from the theatrical version. Mm. Because what they did was they painted the castle and everything else around it on a cell. And they put that in front of the camera. So that so you're actually looking through the cell to see all the characters in the backdrop. Interesting. So it's almost like an opposite of what you would do on like an actual live theatrical stage where you put Correct. the backdrop behind the actors. Here you actually put like a like a transparency over the camera lens? Yes. Interesting. Yeah, and go back and watch it again, you'll be able to tell. Wow. Okay. So uh, he shows up to the castle. Things look good, but they look decrepit. And Dracula makes his appearance. It's like iconic stairway scene, which is really, really cool. Um, Dracula's brides make an appearance. Haven't seen that in the book yet. Like I said, I'm not that far in the book, but they didn't make an appearance. They were right off the bat in this one. Uh, they don't Is Dracula seem... polyamorous? Oh, absolutely. I mean, he's a polygamist, too. So in addition to being a blood-sucking monster, he's also a polygamist? Why can't you commit, Dracula? Dracula's a player. Dracula be playing. Honestly, I think this is uh, maybe something we see more out of the Grim Adventures of Billy and Mandy Dracula representation. <laughs> One wife. Ah, ah, ah. Two wife. Ah, ah, ah. I did, like I said at the beginning of this, I don't want to think about that at any point during this podcast. You brought up Rickroll Dumbfuck number nine, Mambo number five edition, so I, I really don't want to hear it at this point. We've got to move on. We've absolutely okay. got it. So <laughs> uh, Renfield is the one that shows up to do this uh, this transaction. He's going to give the deed to Dracula. He's going to sign all the papers and all that stuff. Uh, in the book, that's actually Jonathan Harker. Uh, so there's a little bit of a flip there. Uh, don't really know the role that Renfield's going to play in it later or how that changes compared to the book, but it's more so the theatrical rendition than the novel itself. The ship scene, which comes almost immediately after, they really don't waste a lot of time getting there, uh, is something that I remember fondly from the Nosferatu film. Yes, um, and speaking of that, if I can backtrack just one second, I promise. I'm sorry, I just found so much cool stuff about this movie. Um, the only scene to make it from Nosferatu, that was an original Nosferatu scene, into this movie was the it while they're in uh, Dracula's castle and Reinfeld accidentally cuts his finger. Mm. That's not in the novel. That was original to Nosferatu, and then they transferred it over to Dracula with uh, the Widow Stoker's uh, approval. That is true. Also, uh, kind of a caveat on that. In the novel, he cuts himself, but it's not the same way. Basically, he's shaving, and he has a tiny mirror that he's shaving in. Dracula, they combine a two-for-one here, where Dracula hates the fucking mirror, gets rid of the thing, 
and has to restrain himself from sucking his blood right off his neck. Yep. Which is quite different from what happens in here, and not nearly as homoerotic. Yeah, he was gonna suck his finger real good. Mmm. Mmm, yes, now Anyway, we can, we can move on now. Of course. Uh, the ship scene is a lot more, uh, we'll say literal. Like, everything is a bit more realistic. It does not wholly represent the expressionist nature of Nosferatu. It's more so a Hollywood soundstage universal backlot rendition of that. Looks very much like the opening to Gilligan's Island. Interesting Looks... take, and now I can't unsee it. You can't unsee it. No, absolutely not. So they arrive in London, and Renfield is discovered on the ship completely insane. This guy is fucking nuts. Yeah, he looks like, and he looks fucking crazy. Like those eyes, like those unblinking eyes, and like he might as well just had like blood running down his mouth and just being like, I am the Lord of Satan. Like, it, like, I mean, he looks creepy as well. He looks creepier than Dracula. He really does. I mean, Dracula's got that suave appeal. Renfield is a man on a mission, and that mission is to eat as many bugs and rodents as possible. Which, uh, do they explain that in the movie? Like, so Dracula bit him then, yes? He or, either... or, is, he, or is he under Dracula's, like, spell? Like, I that was the only thing I didn't really understand. I don't think he gave him all of the powers of vampirism the same way he tried to do with Mina. Spoiler alert. I think that it's more of a hypnosis vampire thrall type situation. Oh, okay. So it's kind of like, um, edit point. I can't think of what movie I was going to say, but move on. Okay. This is where we get into the stuff that happens in the UK. I guess at the time they just kind of referred to as England, Britain. I'm not really sure how that works. We'll call it the UK. London, to keep it simple. Uh, Dracula arrives London in London. calling. Yeah. <laughs> he starts uh, predating on the people of London. He attacks a girl just to get some blood. I guess I, the ship wasn't a good place for blood. I guess all the sailors had scurvy. I don't really know how that works. Yeah, man. You don't want that scurvy blood. I no. mean, he's undead, but he has taste. Yeah. You know, if you know that you can go to an Outback Steakhouse 20 miles down the road, why the fuck would you stop at McDonald's? Yeah, or try to get a T-bone at Waffle House. Ooh, never had that. Yeah, you're probably better off for it. It's like diner lobster. Ooh, oh, <laughs> that, that sounds like a like a like a slang term for like a, a lady of the night or something. Ooh, you just walk into the diner. All right, boys, what do you have? Make sure you stay away from that diner lobster over there. Two dollar suck jobs. Two dollar suck jobs. Oh, ugh. Ugh, it's like something you'd find in a Florida Waffle House. Ooh, you mean just any Waffle House in Florida? You are correct. Anyway, we have to move on. <laughs> yeah, we absolutely do. So uh, Dracula comes to London. He predates on the people of London. He kind of attacks a girl there. I guess just wants some quick blood or something and meets the neighbors. Um, this atmosphere that we get from the streets of London and the parks around London. And uh, later on, there's a scene where a police officer finds a child. They don't show that on screen, but he finds a child who's been attacked. This kind of atmosphere is pervasive throughout the rest of the Universal Monster movies. Yes. like that where dark and stormy night type thing. Dark and stormy night, kids getting killed. We'll see that in Frankenstein. Spoiler alert. There's no spoiler alert. It's yeah, the most right. famous scene from the movie. Well, anyway. I haven't seen it because I haven't seen anything. 
you haven't seen anything, and that's why this podcast exists. Anyway, right. please continue. Okay, yeah. So Dracula appears after Mina becomes ill. It turns out that he actually attacked her with the intent of turning her into another one of his vampire brides, I think. He's at least trying to turn her into a vampire. This comes after he has attacked Lucy, her friend, who did not make it. That's where Van Helsing comes into the picture, where he kind of goes to the medical review and the autopsy and sees what happened and says, I know what this is. I'm your guy. Let me help. So he shows up. He starts putting Wolfbane on shit. Uh, there's a lot of really, really solid dialogue between Van Helsing and Dracula or between Mina and Dracula or Mina's family and Dracula. Basically, anyone that talks to Dracula is almost carried by Dracula. Yeah, so Dracula is definitely a master manipulator in this. Like, not only just using his powers, but using his words. Like, he's trying to keep people away from Mina. He's trying to definitely keep people away from Reinfeld. It is no fucking coincidence that uh, they all think he's crazy. Because he is. But Dracula did this completely on purpose. Yes. He's a master of his own environment. Also... Just just another quick little side venture here. Um, so, Brides of Dracula. Mm-hmm. Now, do do the girls have to be vampires for Dracula to fuck them? Um, I'm going to go out on a limb and say no, just based on the lore established in the Hammer Studios Dracula series in the 70s. I, okay, cool. So, so suspicion confirmed. He doesn't have to do this. He's a true monster. I think that that's not something that they adventured too far into with the book or the movie or the theatrical rendition. This is, I don't want to say pure because some of the things that are happening are truly evil in a lot of ways, but it is a more hmm, idealistic view of the world where there's like good guys and bad guys and Dracula's a bad guy and everybody else is trying to be good, but like you're attracted to Dracula a little bit because he's like such an interesting character. There's not like a, like a sex drive. The only romance side plot is between Jonathan Harker and Mina because they're fiancés. Yep. And it's very pure, very, uh, very 1930s. Yeah. So as the story goes on, Mina's condition deteriorates just a little bit and she starts doing this kind of otherworldly stuff. She like escapes from a room. She, I think she hypnotizes one of the nurses at one point. Maybe it was Dracula. Maybe it wasn't. It's kind of hard to tell at a certain point because they're kind of becoming one in vampirism. Yeah. Like she is unwittingly be- joining the vampires without actually becoming a vampire yet because I don't think he's sucked her blood yet. Right, and I think this is an interesting time, or edit point, I think this is a good time to address the difference between what happens to Mina and what happens to Renfield, which is kind of what we talked about earlier, where Renfield is more of Dracula's slave or thrall, and Mina is more of a, more of an interest for him, more like one of his vampire brides, or maybe he's just trying to, I don't know, do something, he he wants a companion, he doesn't want a slave. Yeah, and... He very quickly just dismisses Reinfeld in anything. Right, but he does give him certain abilities. Uh, at one point, Martin, one of the orderlies in the sanitarium, says that he has bent the bars to his cell and left. He can also talk to Dracula, Renfield can. When Dracula is a wolf or Dracula's the bat, he hears things like orders from Dracula. So he does have these supernatural kind of powers, but I don't think that at any point Dracula ever intended to make him a vampire. 
we're not really sure if that's what Reinfeldt wanted because he keeps snitching on him. He does. And maybe that's just a, like a weakness of character thing. Maybe he's truly is kind of crazy. Yeah, it. I think because he wasn't crazy when the movie started. I think this whole situation, this whole situation has made him crazy. Mm-hmm. I could see how. I could see. I mean, yeah, definitely being um the mental and physical slave of Dracula for, you know, days, months. We don't even know. It's probably months at this point. Yeah, I'd say so. It would have to be at least a month for them to go from, uh, we're going to say, probably Greece, Macedonia, somewhere in the Mediterranean, to get on the ship all the way around Spain, all the way up to the UK, where they disembark in and around England. Yes. Or uh, London. Disembark in and around London. The final chase scene is amazing, first off, and it has a lot of that imagery that we've craved from the beginning. It shows Carpax Abbey in all of its uh, horrible (laughs) glory. I mean, it's a decrepit castle. It's like an old monastery, kind of, and it's a really, really cool place to see Dracula. Yeah, and this is is where you want to see him. This is Dracula in his purest form. Um, He, you know, he throws Reinfeld to the fucking ground. He uh, he's done with them. He no longer needs him. And just just the saddest death in the whole movie. It is. Uh, Renfield just wanted to please his master. It wasn't even his will to do these things for Dracula necessarily. He just kind of got caught in a bad place at a bad time. Whether or not he deserved it, like from a Dracula standpoint, because he betrayed him. And that's why Dracula knows he's probably going to get murdered right here, right now. Maybe Dracula just has a thing against real estate salesmen. Like, I think if Dracula were around in the U.S., he wouldn't vote for Trump for that reason. Like, I could just imagine our president going to the castle and be like, I have the sweetest place for you to come in England. It is amazing. It is so, so good. And they they won't try to kill you there. I promise. As long as you keep a low profile, no one will kill you. I promise. My boy Boris Johnson, he is such a great, great guy. He's going to take care of you. He's going to do many great, great things. Uh, Boris I, Johnson and Trump, same person. Anyway, this is not a politics podcast. No, it is not. No, absolutely nothing to defame the leaders of our country. Fuck them. Anyway. Your word's not mine. So the chase comes to a head when Dracula takes Mina downstairs to the basement of the Abbey where he has his kind of lair set up. Uh, John Harker and Van Helsing follow him down there. And I, what I want to call a final battle, but it's not necessarily a battle. Van Helsing just finds him and drives a stake through him, which is, I guess, how you kill a vampire. But, I mean, by today's standards, that's kind of uh, anticlimactic. Anticlimactic because of... This is why I teach you things, children. Because of the Haze Code. Oh, Yay! So, this scene is actually most of what got cut and what is lost. Um, first of all, it was it actually showed him th- driving the stake through. Um, and it is believed that the moans that you hear off screen were a lot longer. They made them take it down to three. Really? Yes. What's the purpose? Like, what, what's so offensive about the moan? Uh, death. Just death in general. They didn't really want you to do death at all. That's why you don't actually see Dracula bite anyone. He's undead. What do you mean, death? Well, I mean, technically he is dying, or it's just violence towards a humanoid character. Mm. They don't care if they're, like, you know, supernatural or whatever. Right. It's just a humanoid character dying on screen was not acceptable. We all know that these types of movies turn our young people into vampire hunters. Exactly. Ooh, we should do Van Helsing at some point. Such a shitty movie, but God, is it fun. Yeah, you're right. I've actually seen that one. You've actually seen that one? Okay. Yeah, you can thank my wife for that. Oh, awesome. I, I, I love your wife. 
she has good taste in shitty movies. I love my wife too. All right. And, um, you know, so, and then Mina is fine. She comes out of the trance as soon as Dracula is dead. I wonder if that means the rest of his wives also came out of it. You gotta wonder, right? They probably just crumbled into dust. Probably, because who knows how old they are. Yeah. This movie, while it has kind of a slow ending by today's standards, is still captivating in a certain sense. Like, I love the characters. I love Dracula. I love the relationship between John Harker and Mina. I think Van Helsing is fucking sweet. Like, everyone involved is so good. Like, everybody just comes together to make a really spectacular production. It 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 truly is. And, like, it's there's a reason that they made so many more of these. It's just because it was, A, easy to make, fun to make, and the audience just ate it up. Mm. Despite them thinking that they wouldn't. Yeah, I mean, sometimes the best things that we have in entertainment come off of a uh, a misreading of an audience or something that they invested in that they thought they shouldn't or maybe something that they invested in that they had no intention of investing in. Kind of like the uh, Starship Troopers movie. Exactly. Like, no one expected Starship Troopers to do anything and just, God, the amount of people that love that movie is insane. And the amount of funding that was accidentally granted to that movie. But this is not a podcast about Starship Troopers. Not yet. Not yet. Not yet it isn't. Not with that attitude. Oh. Anyway, so to close out Dracula, part one of our October series of Meet the Monsters, I wanted to share the epilogue that was written for this movie. It is also lost to time because it was taken out in subsequent re-releases. Featuring Edward Sloan appearing in front of a red curtain. Came out to give a little monologue after the movie. And I'm going to recreate that here for you guys to give you a little nice send-off for your week. Ooh, story time. <clears throat> All right. So, pretend I'm Edward Sloan. Pretend I just came out of the screen. Hey, I was Van Helsing a minute ago. Now I'm going to talk to you. <clears throat> Just a moment, ladies and gentlemen, a word before we go. We hope the memories of Dracula and Reinfeld won't give you bad dreams. So, just a word of reassurance. When you get home and the lights have been turned out, and you are afraid to look behind the curtains, and you dread seeing a face appear at the window, why, just pull yourself together and remember that after all, there are such things as vampires. For this week on For Your Information, I'm Zach. And I'm John. Go watch more movies, fuckos. See ya.